0: Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Welcome again. Some of you may be wondering why I didn't give a big charge to the graduates. A lot of times I'll do about a five-minute brief lesson for them. Uh, Well, this graduating class is lucky. They get a whole sermon. So your message is going to come from Psalm 62. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles, uh, your phones, your iPads, however you follow along. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 62, and graduates, uh, two words I'd like you to take home with you today, God alone, okay? I want you to take those two words home today, uh, and at lunch with mom and dad, uh, or dinner this evening, I'd like you to talk about the significance of God alone. Uh, That's my charge to the graduates. I guess that means I'd encourage you to listen and listen well. Psalm 62, we will start by reading from God's word. It says this, "'For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken.'" How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not Be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray right now that as we've read your word and as we hear from your word, that your word will do your work, Lord. Render our hearts soft so that we have ears to hear and minds to know and hearts to understand, Lord. May we be willing and ready to respond to what your word has to speak into our lives this morning. Lord, that we might increasingly trust, as David urges us, in God alone. It's in your name we pray these things now. Amen. How long do you have to live in a broken and fallen world before you experience stress and distress? Consider it. How long before you experience the harm uh, and the hurt and the pain of a broken relationship? How long before you experience threat and danger? When does an 18-year-old high school graduate learn or gain an awareness of the threats and dangers and harms and pains and sorrows and stresses and distresses of life in this world? I trust that they already have. I have five children under the age of eight or eight and under, Um, and I've already had to have conversations with my children about the pain that can come with friendships, uh, about the hurt and the harm that other people can bring into our lives. It doesn't take very long in this world for us to experience stress, distress, pain, sorrow, and hurt. Life happens to all of us, does it not? Job losses happen, setbacks happen, school closures happen for the high school graduates. uh, Your job or your career may not work out exactly as you planned. It happens. Your college experience might not go exactly as, as you currently imagine it. Life happens. I remember talking to one of our graduates last year when they went off to school And how they were just like, this is not what I wanted it to be like. As you can imagine, school in a COVID world is different. It's not what they had anticipated. Life happens. Sickness, disease, hospitalization happens. Injustice happens. Evil happens. Terrible bosses happen. Somebody just said, yeah. You know. Dishonest friendships happen. Unfaithful spouses happen, rebellious children happens, life happens. We are all starkly aware that we are not going to make it out of this valley of the shadow of death unscathed. Is that not true? Have you ever had life happen and then it happens and happens and happens? It starts to snowball, and it seems like one thing leads to the next thing, leads to the next thing, and you start to feel overwhelmed, overcome, like we're in a tea kettle and just like boiling around us, and we're trying to stop it. Don't let it whistle. Don't let it get out of hand. You may have noticed that there's a refrain in Psalm 62. The refrain is in verses 1 and 2. Again, it comes up in verses 5 and 6, and then you get a summary of that in verse 7. That's the heart of Psalm 62. 1, 2, 5, 6, and then you'll see it there again in verse 7. Then we're petitioned according to that refrain in verse 8. But the refrain, you will notice, surrounds the problem. It encompasses the crisis in verse 3 and 4. And although we don't know the exact historical circumstances that caused David to write this psalm, and he doesn't give us sufficient details to identify specific circumstances, I think when we read verses 3 and 4, we can all relate to David's plight. Verse 3. How long? Will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. How long? When do we ask that question Oftentimes, it's when we've endured some trial, some suffering, some sorrow for a sufficient time that we begin to wonder, will it ever end? Is there an end to this? Is there an end in sight? Will I get relief from my suffering? Will I get relief from my circumstances? The pressures of life weigh in on us. They press in on us and they push us to our end. To the point where our formerly glorious life, when everything was good, life was good, health was good, finances were good, family was good, your marriage was good, your kids were even good. Everything used to look up. We were in a high, even a, verse 4, confident, high position. But then something happens and things start to look down. We're like what David calls a leaning wall and a tottering fence. I think it's a beautiful picture. Life deals us blows. And Psalm 62 is written to you and I today when we are a leaning wall and a tottering fence. It's written to give us hope. It's written to give us courage and, indeed, to, ri- to give us confidence. It's written to answer the question, what do we turn to when we are the leaning wall? To whom do we turn when we are the tottering fence? With what truths do we counsel ourselves when someone has turned on our backs behind us and caused us pain, sorrow, and distress? Where do we learn to turn in how long moments? Let's look right there at verse 1. We trust in God alone. Do you hear it? You trust in God alone. Look at verse 1, for God alone. Look down at verse 2. He what? Alone. Go to verse 5. For God alone, verse 6, He only, there is one to whom we turn when the pressures of life overwhelm. There is one and one only to whom we turn when we are leaning and tottering. Now, I know there are many here today who would say, yeah, I know we're supposed to trust God. But I think the significant thing about Psalm 62 is that second part. Trust God what? Alone. Do you trust God alone? And I think and I fear that the temptation of our heart is sometimes to trust what I would call God and. Well, yeah, I trust God and my intellectual capacities. I trust God and my retirement account. I trust God and my plans, my control, my health, my well-being, my authority, my power. I trust God and these things. And a lot of these things aren't bad things. They're good things. We can have these things. But when we trust God and, then when the pressures of life start to overwhelm, what do we do? We trust the and. Not the God who gave us all of those capacities. Is that not true? Do you not find that true in your life? Now, I'm going to tell you right now that to trust in God alone does not miraculously move, remove the trials from your life. It does not miraculously uh, eradicate the hurricanes, the storms, the troubles. It doesn't make them disappear. What does David say? In God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. This is not when I trust in God alone. All of a sudden, life is just peaceful. All my problems disappear. I I just, just calm, surrounds me all the time, and I don't have to worry about any of those things. That is not what David is saying here in Exodus chapter 14, the nation of Israel, they have marched down to the Red Sea. They are escaping from slavery in Egypt, but then the Egyptian army begins to encroach in on them, and they are in fear. They're afraid. What are we going to do? And Moses brings a word from God, and consider what Moses says in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. He says this, fear not, stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Here's the key words. You have only to be silent. You have only to be silent. This is not let go and let God do nothing. Just sit down and just whatever happens, happens. Okay, that's bad theology. It's not let go and let God. This is in the pressure, in the boiling pot, in the midst of all the things that are weighing in on you and coming in. This is Psalm 46, 10, Be still and know that I am God. And if you read the context of Psalm 46, we see this. We are to be still and know that I am God when the mountains move and tremble. When the waters roar and foam, when the nations rage and the kingdoms topple, our soul rests resolutely silent before the Lord. Now the nation of Israel is on the edge of the sea, and what are they going to have to do? Moses is going to have to hold up the staff, and the people are going to have to march through. What I can only imagine would be a roaring wall of water. They're going to have to trust God and take a step. And their soul is going to have to eradicate all other fears and trust God alone. As the pressures of life prevail against us, the wind continues to hammer us and the rain goes horizontal against, against us, we wait silently before the Lord. As classmates ridicule you because... You refuse to participate in their, I'll quote these, little sins. As co-workers speak harmful or hurtful things about you behind your back. As hardships, employment, health, relationships, and everything else deteriorates, our soul waits in silence as we barely stand. Back to the image, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. Our soul waits in silence for God alone. Now, why do we trust in God alone in this moment? Why do we trust him today in the present circumstances, in the present crisis? Whatever's happening, David tells us. We trust God alone because salvation comes from God alone. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. When you understand, when you know that your salvation comes from God alone, it gives you strength in your present circumstances. Why is that? My kids, uh, we are going through catechism, and I just want to teach them some of the doctrines and the truths of the Christian faith while they are young so that, Lord, willingly they will be rooted in them from an early age. And one of the questions that I've recently asked them is this, what is a covenant of grace? And the answer in a catechism is this, it is the eternal agreement of God to provide all the means of salvation, The eternal agreement of God to provide all the means of salvation. We believe that we are sinners before a holy and righteous God. And we are therefore deserving of the just punishment, the just penalty we deserve for our sins. Because we believe justice matters. And sin deserves a punishment. But if we are honest, we know that that means that we deserve a punishment but a holy God sent His only Son to live a perfect life, sinless beyond, beyond question, without question. No fault, no sin, utterly perfect life, and yet endure the death penalty, suffering, and sorrow that we so greatly deserved. And He stood in our place And that through faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that salvation we have is the beginning of the immeasurable riches of kindness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches of kindness that God shows us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation comes from God alone. We are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in love because He loved us. And Acts 2.23 says this, He was delivered to die on a cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God provides all the means of our salvation. So if we are to boast in anything, we boast in nothing but the Lord. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 30 or chapter 1, verse 30, says this, Because of him, that is God, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Consider this. This is what Christ is to us. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Not in ourselves. Not in our retirement accounts. Not in our authority our power, our health, our influence, our intellectual ability. We do not boast in these things. We boast in the Lord because our salvation comes from God alone. And when we understand that our salvation comes from God alone, we are strengthened to trust God alone. Because to understand the depths to which God was willing to go to make us our own, is to recognize to the depths to which he will continually go. Romans 8:32 says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you cherish that truth today? Oh, but Benjamin, you know what's going on in my life? Do you know what's happening in my life? Do you know the, the trials that are pressing against me? Yeah, I understand. Trials are pressing in. So does Paul. And he looks to what God did in Christ Jesus and where Jesus presently is, Romans 8:34, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, and he recognizes something. Verse 35: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tell me about your trials. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of these things separate us from Christ? Verse 39, no. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Imagine for a moment again that leaning wall and that tottering fence. We understand as we read Psalm 62 that that's us. Tribulation, suffering, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Uh, the exact words we use might differ, but we experience these things. And the enemy assaults us, full frontal assault, with every lie, every deception. He plays and preys on our weaknesses, on our fears, our temptations. And he is doing everything he can to totter the wall to damage and destroy the fence. And from the entirely earthly perspective that we often find ourselves in of the fence, we feel like we are on the verge of collapse. But salvation that comes from God alone, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, gives us a momentary reprieve. And we are able to step back And we are able to gaze for a moment at that fence. We are able to gaze for a moment at that wall on the verge of collapse. And we are given a, a picture from the windows of eternity. And we see something. We see that God is standing over the fence. He is over it. He is beyond it. He transcends over all of his creation. He has gone before it and he is behind it. And God is standing there and he has a loving smile about his being. And he's placed his hand behind the fence. And he knows that all of the enemy's assaults are nothing but pea shooters against his hand. They're not going to topple the fence. They're not going to topple the fence. You see, God knows what we often forget. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against the elect? God knows that our, our sufferings and our trials are working in us an eternal weight of glory. They are preparing us to receive a crown of righteousness that they're for our good. That God is using them in the moment. And yeah, we may feel on the verge of collapse. We may feel on the verge of utter ruin. But God knows that he does never leave us and he does never forsake us. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. When you understand the significance of salvation that comes from God alone, then you can say and you can declare with David, He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. It is then and only then when we fall and lean back and rest on His hand. His almighty, omnipotent, loving hand. That we see the security that can be found only in God alone. But we only know the security and the safety and the refuge and the fortress and the rock that is God alone when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see how far God was willing to go to make us his own. God does not leave. He never will. He does not change He is immovable, and his steadfast love, Ephesians chapter 3, surpasses understanding. And so, today we can say with David, I shall not be greatly shaken. I have a rock, a fortress, a refuge, and it's my rock. It's my fortress. He's my refuge. Or rather, perhaps we need to say, as David says in verse six, I shall not be shaken. You see, as David recalls and recollects God alone from whom his salvation comes as his soul rests silently waiting on God alone, it seems that David, the even possibility of being shaken is eradicated from his mind such that when he comes back to it in verse 6, what he says, I shall not be shaken. There's a beauty when we dwell on God alone. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28 captures this really well. Have you not known Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's God. He gives power to the faint. Oh, that's encouraging. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, graduates, shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Don't trust in the strength of your youthful body. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, the beauty of trusting in God alone. Now maybe... It's hard to trust in God alone because you feel like you're on the edge of collapse and you're afraid that maybe going before God and exposing your struggle may actually bring you to the point of collapse. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this. This has been a huge verse for me over the last few years in college as I was working through my master's and I found myself oftentimes overwhelmed, exhausted, and uh, sometimes stressed out and tired. Speaking of Jesus, the servant of God, Isaiah says this, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's not going to topple the fence. If you're bruised, he's not going to break you. If you're faintly burning and smoldering, he's not going to put you out. He, in his omnipotent power, is also loving, tenderly kind. And in in your leaning wall, how long moments, he will restore you. He will renew your strength as you wait and trust in him and him alone. There's a fairly well known worship song that says this He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will what? Will hold me fast. So what do you do with this magnificent truth? What do we do if God will hold us fast? And we learn this, and we know this, and we believe this, and we, we trust in God alone. What do we do? How do we apply this today, this week? this month, this year. There's four quick things here that I would encourage us to consider. The first thing we need to do is we need to counsel our souls to trust in God alone. Counsel our souls. You will notice there is a subtle change in the refrain. In verse 1, David states a fact. For God alone my soul waits in silence. In verse 5, when he repeats, what does he say? For God alone, he petitions, doesn't he? Oh, my soul, wait. David has to petition his soul to believe the truth he already knows. This is the reality of life in a broken and fallen world. There's an ongoing battle, battle in our Christian lives to shape our hearts with the truths that our minds already know. And I believe that God is gracious in this. We must daily counsel ourselves with the gospel of our salvation. We must daily counsel ourselves, verse 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, with the power and steadfast love of God. We must daily remind ourselves of these things. We must daily deny ourselves the temptation to trust in earthly things so that we can remember by setting our hearts and minds on things above to trust in God alone. And as we battle in this daily battle, and we find ourselves in Romans 7, 24, like Paul, uh, wondering, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's hard. It's difficult. Jesus never promised it would be easy. He promised persecution to his followers. There's going to be hardships Denying yourself and taking up your cross daily to follow him is not supposed to be easy. But if like Paul and like David, we find ourselves reflecting on the nature and the character of God alone, then we will come to the same conclusion. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we will then pour out our hearts, Psalm 62.8, we will pour out our hearts before him because God is a refuge for, our, for us. As we counsel our souls, we have to pour out our hearts to God. And the word for pour, literally, it refers to pouring out a liquid till it's exhausted. Opening up every avenue of your heart before God. Hiding and withholding nothing from him. Being completely vulnerable about your wants, your needs, your desires, your anguish, your stress, your trial. And laying them all at the feet of God. If you read through the Psalms, you will see that the Psalms can address all of those things. The psalmists are so good at just pouring out their hearts to God. Counsel our souls to trust in God alone. Second, we must counsel one another to trust in God alone. Verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. David's recounted his own battle. He's recounted how he has has to counsel his own soul. He's recounted the truths that can shape us in the midst of the leaning wall moment. But then he turns and the entire psalm becomes counsel to one another. It comes becomes counsel to the people of God. Trust in him at all times. O oh people, God is a refuge for us. There's an important benefit to being a part of the family of God. It's that you have an us to whom you can go when crisis happens, when trial happens, when hardship happens, when things don't go as planned. You can go there at all times, good times and hard times. And you can develop the kind of relationships that you can share those crises and those trials and the one another's all of a sudden matter. Love one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Build up one another. And indeed, here we see the advice that we need to counsel one another. We need to spur one another on to love and good works. We need to encourage one another in the midst of suffering to trust in God alone. There's beauty and being connected intimately to the body of Christ that helps you remain connected to Christ. That's why he gave us his body. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church, we're told. And if we disconnect ourselves from the body, we disconnect ourselves from the head. Think about that. It's like decapitating yourself from Christ. Counsel one another by your relationships, personal, close, intimate relationships you have in the church with people who are trustworthy, who can point you to Christ and Christ alone. Third, we must not trust in earthly things. The ands that we talked about at the beginning. David, God, David together want us to know, don't put your trust and your confidence in the and. God alone. Notice what David does in verses 9 and 10. He picks the two biggest ands in our lives that we like to turn to for trust in order to show us what they really are. Verse 9, about people and trusting in people, David says this, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. There's an interesting contrast here. That word but a is the exact same word for only or alone. God alone, he alone, God alone, he only, only a. He's comparing and contrasting those of high and low estate. That's a a term that's used in Hebrew to refer to all people. He's comparing all people with God alone. And they all together are alone a breath. Picture the picture now. We put the confidence and the trustworthy in all people and we gather it together, and we place it on a scale. And you want to see how trustworthy all of humanity is together? I know some of you in here today, right now, you're feeling like, I'm like really trustworthy. I'm like the most trustworthy person ever. You're a sinner like me. I hate to break it to you. You're going to disappoint people. You're going to let people down. And your life, okay, bad news, it's but a breath. Here today and tomorrow it's gone. So the people who are leaning on you, Tomorrow, they might not be able to. Put all of our composite trust, all of our composite trustworthiness, place it on the scale. You want to see how weighty it is? The scale goes up. They are together, all of them together, lighter than a breath. David is not saying we shouldn't be trustworthy. He is not saying there are not some trustworthy people in your lives, okay? We need trustworthy people who can counsel us to trust in God alone, okay? I understand that, okay? He is not saying that, but what he is saying is this. In our best moments, when we are reasonably trustworthy for a period of time, maybe our parents are trustworthy, maybe we have a friend who's very trustworthy, in our best moments, we merely point to what God is all the time, and we can't be all the time. He is ultimately trustworthy. If we put our confidence and our trust in friendships and then a friendship disappoints us, what happens? It devastates us. If we put all our hope and our confidence and our trust in the approval of man, we can get the approval of a wide audience, and then we find out there's that one person we want the approval of who haven't, hasn't quite approved of us. And what does it do? It destroys us. Set not your feet on the shifting sand of trustworthiness in human beings. Set your feet on the firm rock, the fortress, the refuge that cannot be shaken, which is God alone. We don't just trust in people. We also like to trust in money, don't we? Got a good retirement account. I got this much in my savings. I got a raise. I got all the way. We want to trust in money, and it's so easy. Jesus warns about it repeatedly. Look what David says. Put no trust in extortion. Verse 10. Set no vain hopes on robberly, robbery. This is money dishonestly gained. Agreed. And we all should here be like, yeah, no, don't do that. That's wrong. Of course. But then he says this, if riches increase, and the word increase is the word fruitfulness. And so a lot of scholars would agree that he's speaking about money honestly gained. So don't cheat to get wealthy. Okay? Don't set your sights on money that you would do something wrong or illegal to get it. But, if you do gain money in an honest way, set not your heart on them. Jesus warned about it enough. Sermon on the mountain elsewhere. Solomon in Psalm 20, or Proverbs 23 says this, When your eyes light on it, it is gone. Suddenly it sprouts wings and like an eagle flies toward heaven. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Sprouts wings, flies away. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Trust God alone. Finally, one-fourth, Thing here. We must deepen our understanding of God alone. Look at what David says in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Now, parents, you know that this is not how speaking and hearing works, don't you? It's usually like three times, four times, eight times, 20 times I have spoken, and then my kids heard once. And in our own lives, if we're honest for a moment, we're like, a lot of times God has to speak more than once before I hear it once. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard it. What is David saying? He's saying you can trust God what God proclaims about Himself. When we say that to power belongs to God and to the Lord alone belongs steadfast love, we can hear it, we can put it in our mind, let it settle in our hearts, and then let it land on the firm bed of the foundations of our trust in God alone. This means that each and every day, Our understanding of God alone has to be deepening, growing, expanding, so that our understanding of God can can handle and endure the trials that life may bring. See, trials are going to happen in life. And if your understanding of God is not sufficient in the moment to handle the trial, it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with our understanding. And our understanding is what needs to grow to more conform to the reality of who God has revealed himself to be through his word, such that when he speaks once, we hear it twice. To God alone belongs power. To God alone belongs steadfast love. He has the capacity to handle your trial and He loves you. He's shown that to you in your salvation. He has shown you how much He loves you. He loves you enough that He is willing and able to help you amidst your trials. We're about to take communion. And in communion, we see the depths of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. We also see his power, do we not? We're reminded that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. He suffered the penalty, the punishment that we deserved for our sins. But did he remain dead? Answer me <laughs> no. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating the power of death. We see the power of God, and he has promised, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Get these words, 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, until he comes. Why? Because he's alive. We have a God who's all-powerful, and yet, has gone to great lengths to show us his love in order to make us his own. And that's what we remember when we come together as a body counseling one another, proclaiming what Christ has done for us to participate together in communion. Right now, we're going to take a moment to take communion as we prepare.